Today we'll talk about enlightenment factors, so you have an understanding of what's going on when you're doing the practice. There are seven enlightenment factors. There is, or factors of awakening, also known as awakening factors. So there's mindfulness, there's investigation of states, there's energy, there's joy, there's tranquility, there's collectedness, and there is equanimity. Mindfulness. When we talk about mindfulness, it is essentially remembering to observe how mind's attention moves from one object to the other. That is the definition that our teacher Bhante Vimaramsi has provided. Remembering to observe how mind's attention moves from one object to the other. Mindfulness, mindfulness comes from the word sati. And sati means to remember, to recollect. Another way of looking at mindfulness is that it is the ability to observe the mind in whatever process is going on, right? So in other words, being aware of awareness itself or mind being aware of itself. Yesterday we talked a little bit about metacognition, that is the cognition of cognition. So understanding where your mind is moving and not being caught up in it, just observing. So in the suttas you have the four foundations of mindfulness. You have mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind, and mindfulness of mind objects. Now the way it's been categorized makes it seem like you have to first be aware of body, then you have to be aware of feelings, then you have to be aware of mind, then you have to be aware of mind objects. But that's not the case. It is just the formatting that has been provided in the sutta by, show, by showing the most uh, apparent, which is the body, all the way down to the subtlest, which is the mind phenomena or mind objects. But in reality, when you are meditating, you are observing or aware of all four foundations, one way or the other. They are interconnected. They are interwoven in the practice. So mindfulness of body or mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind or mindfulness of mind objects happens when you are doing the metta practice. When you are staying with loving kindness in your heart, first you are aware of what is happening in the body. Is there a sensation in the body? There's a sensation. Sensation itself is the feeling, the feeling of loving kindness. Where is the mind in relation to it, right? Is the mind having craving or is the mind free of craving? Is the mind distracted or is the mind aware? Is the mind contracted or is the mind expanded? Is the mind surpassed or unsurpassed and so on? So whenever you notice tightness or tension in the body, what is that? That's mindfulness of the body. Whenever you notice that there is metta present, what is that? That is mindfulness of a mind object. 
noticing that there is a hindrance present when you are meditating and all of a sudden there is sensual craving that arises. What is that? That is mindfulness of a mind object. Or when you notice that you have let go of the object and you've come back, that is also mindfulness of the mind. Mind was contracted, mind was distracted, now mind is free of that distraction. Now mind is expanded. Now mind is collected rather than uncollected. So mindfulness is not something that you can do. Mindfulness is something that you relax into. Mindfulness is a quality of the mind. Right? It is a process of the mind that happens as a result of being present. That is why when you talk about mindfulness as sati, there is linked to that word sampanjanya. Sati, sampanjanya. Sati is the mindfulness. Sampanjanya is understanding or comprehension. Now, in some levels of understanding, sampanjanya means the awareness of the arising and passing away of phenomena. Or the awareness and understanding of dependent origination. But for practical purposes, the way to understand sampanjanya is when you are walking, you know you're walking. When you are eating, you know you're eating. When you are tasting food, you know you are tasting food. When you are sitting, you know you are sitting. When you are meditating, you know you're meditating. What does that all mean, basically? It means present moment awareness. Coming back to this moment right here, right now. Being aware of what is going on in the mind, what is going on in the body, what is going on with the mind in relation to the body, in relation to the feeling, in relation to mind itself or mind objects. So the way to start mindfulness or to bring up mindfulness is to relax into the moment and be open. Again, the theme here is to take refuge in the moment, to surrender to the moment, have that presence of mind to be aware of what's going on. That's it. Everything else will start to build upon it and take care of itself. So from this mindfulness, it leads to what's known as Dhamma Vichaya, which is usually translated as investigation of states. The word investigation is a very tricky translation because it sounds like it's something that you have to do. You have to think about these awakening factors as qualities of mind. Indeed, when we talk about mindfulness of mind objects or mindfulness of phenomena, included in that is the list of the seven awakening factors. You have the four noble truths, you have the five hindrances, and you have the seven awakening factors. They are just phenomena that are happening in the mind. It's not something that you can intend to bring up. 
they happen naturally and they are happening naturally every time your mind remains mindful mindfulness gets the ball rolling and what gets the ball rolling for mindfulness present moment awareness being here now sampanjanya so what is investigation of states investigation of states is understood as an antidote for doubt or a confusion remember yesterday we talked about doubt as being the inability to recognize what is wholesome and what is unwholesome in other words being confused about what state of mind the mind is in currently that's it so investigation how do you open yourself up to investigation the mindfulness of what is present and then see was there tension there or was the mind in a wholesome state was there spaciousness there or was the mind contracted just in observing and knowing this you are already having investigation investigation here can mean understanding or it can mean comprehension just like sampanjanya or it can mean the the reflection of something not to reflect but to see the reflection of your own mind in other words what is the mind reflecting to you as the observer what is the mind showing you as the observer what are the qualities present in the mind so being open to the mind will allow you to have this investigation it's not about analyzing it's not about thinking it's not about exploring it's about being open and present to what the mind is reflecting to you and understanding what is being reflected so then you can make adjustments and the making of those adjustments is what balances the energy or virya right so virya means literally the strength of something the energy of something the power of something so here you are balancing the mind so this energy can be lax which can lead to sloth and torpor or this energy be energy can be too much which can lead to restlessness and remorse but every time you relax and you let go you are coming back to a aligned or balanced energy relaxing doesn't mean that you loosen only relaxing can also mean that you come into a balanced energy so when we recognize that the mind was distracted or that a hindrance arose we have started the mindfulness process as soon as you recognize something that in itself is mindfulness mindfulness of what mindfulness of that hindrance mindfulness of mind phenomena mindfulness of mind and so on and knowing that you are distracted knowing that you have a hindrance in mind that is the investigation of states that is the dhamma vichaya 
So once you recognize you've already taken care of mindfulness and investigation of states. Once you relax, what that means is when you relax, you just let go of the distraction, right? And you do a full sweep of relaxing throughout the system. And that balances the energy. If there's tightness somewhere, it will loosen up that tightness. If something is too lax elsewhere, it will start to bring up more balance there. That's the idea of relax, right? This is what's known as pasadhi or tranquility. So when you relax, what is happening? As I mentioned yesterday, when you relax, you experience the mundane form of Nibbana. Mind is very spacious. Mind is clear. Mind is without any kind of conditions. It is unconditioned in that moment. As a result of which you experience joy in the form of smiling. So now we have mindfulness, which leads to investigation of states. Then we have investigation of states, which leads to energy. And that energy then leads to joy, and then that joy leads to tranquility. But I said that the recognize leads to relax, re relax leads to re-smile. So here what we're saying is the tranquility leads to joy, and that's fine. When your mind is tranquil, you are naturally joyful. Now the word joy can denote all kinds of things like an exuberant state of being or a state of being that is filled with a lot of excitement and so on. But when we say joy, we're really talking about being uplifted. Having a mind that is sharp and clear and pleasant, that's enough. This piti that people talk about sometimes can be experienced as heat in the body. It can be experienced as energy in the body. It can be experienced as vibrations in the body. But these are all just emanations or manifestations of this piti. The true understanding of piti is that the mind is uplifted. And that's all that you need to know. The mind is uplifted in a happy state, in a state that is glad, in a state that is slightly energized, doesn't need to be extremely exuberant. So coming back to my point, when you have tranquility, your mind is naturally uplifted. When you have joy, your body is naturally relaxed. So when you come back to the smile, you bring up that joy. And then when you come back to your object, what happens? You have what's known as collectedness. That joy leads to tranquility. That tranquility leads to collectedness. This word collectedness comes from the word samadhi. Samadhi. So what does samadhi actually mean? Sama means the same. It's balanced. It's even. And dhi is the short form for buddhi. Buddhi means the mind, the intellect. So samadhi means that the mind is at balance. The mind is collected. The mind is 
composed. So one of the images that I provide to understand collectedness is you can imagine that your object of meditation is a planet and that your attention right, is the satellite that moves around the object, moves around the planet. So it's not becoming one with the planet. If you become too concentrated, if you become too focused, what happens? The satellite gets into the gravitational field of the planet a little too closely, right? And then it crash lands into the planet. Not a good idea. If the collectedness is too loose, then the satellite starts to drift away. There's not enough attention, which means there can be sloth and torpor. So how do you deal with it? You send somebody there to make sure that it goes back into orbit. In this case, you use right effort. You use right effort in both cases. If the satellite is too close, meaning you're too focused, you loosen up a little bit using right effort. If the satellite drifts away, which means the attention is too loose, you tighten up a little using the four R's to come back. So this collectedness is related to what's known as ekagata. Ekagata is a unified mind. Right? Ekagata is usually or traditionally translated as one-pointedness. But if you say one-pointedness, what we're saying is it feels like the mind's attention becomes like a laser and it pinpoints only on one location that is at, excuse me, at the object. And this is what happens when you have the state of absorption, where the mind feels like it has become one with the object of meditation. So the metta feels like you have become metta personified or you have become compassion personified. But in doing so, you suppress everything else that's happening in the mind. So you have too much collectedness. Now here's another interesting thing. You can have too much of any of the awakening factors except for mindfulness. You can never have enough of mindfulness. But the other six you can have too much of. And that's where the balancing act takes place. And usually this balancing act will happen when you are in quiet mind. It might happen before that, but it can happen when you are in quiet mind as well. So this, this collectedness leads to equanimity. So what is this equanimity? Equanimity comes from the word upeka, right? And upeka means not to take sides. It means to be balanced in your approach. So another word for equanimity is in Pali, it's called yata bhutta jnana dasanam. Yata bhutta jnana dasanam, which means, yata bhutta means reality, right? Jnana means knowledge, dasanam means vision. So the knowledge and vision of things as they are. This is true equanimity. 
seeing things as they are without getting caught up in them. If it's very pleasant, the mind says, okay, it's pleasant, but it doesn't get caught up in it. It doesn't say, I want more of it. Or it doesn't have any kind of craving where if it goes away, how does the mind feel? If it's unpleasant, the mind doesn't get caught up in that and say, I don't like this and pushes it away. Or it doesn't have any disturbance. It just is, okay, it's an unpleasant feeling. So this equanimity is part and parcel of the entire process of right effort. Because the equanimity is an underlying theme. It's a string, that, a thread that goes through each of the other uh, factors and goes through each of the steps of the four R's. Because without equanimity, your mind will get caught up in the hindrance, will want to push that hindrance, will want to fight that hindrance, will want to do something with that hindrance except for letting it go. But if there is equanimity and the ability to say, oh, here is a hindrance present, it's just a hindrance. That is recognizing. And then you're able to let go and relax. Then you're able to smile. Then you're able to come back to your object of meditation. As a result of which, your equanimity deepens and becomes stronger and stronger. So when we look at the enlightenment factors, they lead into each other. Mindfulness leads to investigation of states. Investigation of states leads to energy. Energy leads to joy. Joy leads to tranquility. Tranquility leads to collectedness. And collectedness leads to equanimity. That is the linear approach of understanding the awakening factors. But also, there is a circular factor or circular way of looking at it. That is to say, once you have equanimity, that equanimity deepens the next arising of mindfulness. And then that mindfulness deepens the level of investigation. That investigation deepens the level of balance in energy. That balance deepens the level of joy or being uplifted. That joy or being uplifted deepens the level of tranquility. And that tranquility deepens the level of collectedness. This is why when you get to the fourth jhana, it says that, this, that the purity of mindfulness due to equanimity is the highlight of the fourth jhana. If you read in the suttas, this is what it says. And he has purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. And the reason is because the enlightenment factors have been circling through as your mind becomes further and further collected, as your mind get, gets more and more collected around its object of meditation. So how do we balance the enlightenment factors? How do we bring them into balance? Usually, when the enlightenment factors are in balance, there's nothing to do just to observe and to allow things to be as they are. But sometimes you will notice that things can be out of whack, right? They can be out of balance. Sometimes there's sloth and torpor, which means there might be too much tranquility going on, too much collectedness going on, too much equanimity going on. So what do you do? First, you need the mindfulness to recognize that there is sloth and torpor. 
And then you need the investigation of states to let you know, okay, here is sloth and torpor. And then you need the energy and the joy to say, I'm going to take a little bit more interest in my object of meditation. And so that is how you balance the energy. If there is too much restlessness going on, then what that means is the active factors of the enlightenment factors are too much. What does that mean? There's too much investigation of states going on. There's too much joy going on. There's too much energy going on. So how do you balance it? Bring in more collectedness. Bring in more tranquility, bring in more collectedness, bring in more equanimity. So first you need the mindfulness to recognize here is restlessness, here is remorse. So I recognize that that's there, I'm going to relax, I'm going to tranquilize, I'm going to let go. I'm going to loosen a little bit. I'm going to take a step back a little bit. And I'm going to let the mind collect naturally. The thing about these processes are that when you are working at the level of mind, they're happening very subtly. So you don't need to make large steps. Small incremental micro steps are enough. If you need to take a little bit more, do a little bit more, but you don't need to do as much, right? So put a drop in, notice the change in the mind. Okay, there's not enough change, put another drop in and then notice the change. You don't need to like say, okay, now I have a lot of sloth and torpor, so I'm gonna bring in as much interest as I can. I'm going to bring in as much energy as I can. What's gonna happen? You're gonna slingshot from sloth and torpor down to, up to restlessness. And then when you have restlessness, you're gonna say, okay, I'm gonna relax. What's gonna happen? You're gonna slingshot from the restlessness to sloth and torpor. And all you're going to do is play a ping pong match with yourself. That's it. Go back and forth, back and forth. So small incremental steps to notice how the gauge starts to balance itself out. And then you have true north. You have true collectedness. And how does that feel? As I said yesterday, it feels like everything is in flow. The mind's awareness isn't going anywhere. It is steady. It's solid as a rock, but it is not tight, meaning it's not absorbed. It remains unshakable, and that's all you need to do. So once you have this understanding of the enlightenment factors, you don't need to apply them in a way that's like, okay, now I need to bring up tranquility. Now I need to bring up joy. You just start with present moment awareness, See what's going on in your mind. Notice any tightness and tension. Because when you do that body scan, right, before you sit down, when you do that body scan, you're noticing if there's any tightness and tension. And therefore, you're already bringing in mindfulness. You're already bringing in some panjanya or clear comprehension. And as a result, now that you have present moment awareness, you can relax and then collect your mind around an object, whether it's metta to yourself or to the spiritual friend, sending metta out in different directions or equanimity or whatever it might be. Once you start with that, then just keep going. 
and then make small adjustments wherever you need. As your mind starts to deepen in its collectedness, it starts to get into jhana, right? The first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. Now, when we talk about these jhanic states, what they are are essentially levels of understanding, levels of cessation. So in the first jhana, we have what is known as being secluded from unwholesome states of mind, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, right? So when we say quite secluded from sensual pleasures, what we're talking about is now the mind is resting in itself. You have closed your eyes. You have taken your attention away from what's going on outside in terms of sounds. And you have redirected your mind, withdrawn your mind into itself. This is being quite secluded from sensual pleasures. Secluded from unwholesome states of mind. This means that your mind is free from any kind of hindrance. Free from any kind of sensual desire. Free from any kind of restlessness. Free from sloth and torpor. Free from aversion. Free from any kind of doubt. Now that it is withdrawn and secluded from those hindrances, there is the thinking and examining thought, the vitaka and the vichara. The vitaka is the placing of the intention on an object. So using verbal statements like, may I be happy, may I be well, or bringing up an image that makes you happy, or gratitude, or wholesome memory, or whatever it might be. That's the vitaka, the ignition. Right? You only need to do it one time, and then the placing of the mind and resting on the feeling of the object, of metta or compassion or whatever, is the vichara, the examining thought. What that means is you are sustaining your awareness or your attention on the metta. As a result of which there is piti and sukha, or joy and comfort born of collectedness. Sorry born of seclusion. In other words, when you let go of the hindrance, you find a certain sense of relief. And that relief from that hindrance brings you into that naturally joyful state. It's just uplifted. It's celebratory, like, oh, I am free of this hindrance. And so there is the piti and the sukha born of seclusion. Once you get into the second jhana, you let go of any of the images. You let go of any of the verbalizing. You let go of any of the memories. You let go of any of, you know, words of gratitude or whatever. And now your mind is in a self-confident state. It's aware that, okay, things are flowing. There is clarity here. There is no need to place the mind anywhere. It is remaining on the object. I don't have to do much. It's almost like your mind is on autopilot. And so there is the cessation of hindrances in the first jhana, and then the cessation of the vitaka and vichara in the second jhana. But the piti and the sukha, the joy and comfort, are born of collectedness where the mind is further composed around its object of meditation. And so there's a deepening of joy. There's a deepening of 
sukkah or comfort. And so the mind settles in even further. After a while, as your mind is in this, the joy starts to fade away. Right? It doesn't mean that it's no longer uplifted, but any sense of excited or exuberant joy passes away into the third jhana. And so the third jhana is the cessation of any kind of piti. There is still sukha, that is comfort. There's tranquility. There's great degrees of equanimity here in the mind. And what that means for the body is that it starts to become different in terms of the way it's experienced in the meditation. Sometimes it feels like the body is grounded to its seat or to its cushion. The mind is very composed and the body feels maybe heavy or dense, but it's not an uncomfortable denseness. It's just like it's secure. Other times, or for some other people, the body feels expansive and light and spacious. Or sometimes you even lose awareness of the body. It feels like the body has disappeared and there is only the feeling of the hands in there. And that's it. And that's okay. So when you feel this expansion or this groundedness, this is a highlight of the third jhana. Eventually, when you get into the fourth jhana, the fourth jhana, as I said, is the signature is that, that it is the purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. At this point, there is deep levels of equanimity, deep levels of tranquility, deep levels of peace. So what fades away is sukha. Not that you no longer feel comfortable, not that you no longer feel tranquil, it's just that it becomes so tranquil that all there is, is this equanimity. And so oftentimes, it'll feel like the energy of the metta has shifted upward into the mind. It feels like everything from the neck down becomes you know, invisible, or you can't feel it. Yes, when there's contact, you will feel that contact in that moment. But for the most part, you are here in the head. You are in the mental sphere. And so these are the first four jhanas that you will experience as you continue to collect your mind around the object of metta. And once you start to get to that place, the mind becomes less and less distracted, which means that it's able to stay with its object for longer periods of time before it does get distracted. By the time you're in the fourth jhana, your mind is virtually unwavering. There's very little distraction that can happen. Now the fourth jhana, we'll talk about the rest of that uh, tomorrow, but the fourth jhana is essentially the base for a lot of things. The fourth jhana can be the base for siddhis or supernatural powers, and it can be the base for the ayatanas, or the formless runs, which we'll talk about later. But we'll stop right here, right? I think that's enough to digest for now, is the enlightenment factors and what happens in the first four jhanas. Are there any questions? Sorry.
do, does one always experience jhanas um, through each sitting? Like, does the jhanas repeat itself? Like, can you get into first jhana more than once? Or so, if I'm understanding the question correctly, are you saying that if you are meditating and you're in the first jhana, then you get to the second jhana, and you get to the third jhana, and the next time, in the next sitting, in another sitting, does it repeat itself or no, not necessarily. It can, but not necessarily. It just depends on what degree of collectedness your mind is in. So, if one has experienced a jhana once, but then after many a long time and you don't experience it again, what does that mean? Does that mean anything? It means you're out of practice. <laughs> mm. Okay. <laughs> Consistency is the key. Consistent practice. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Asharia. I've got a few questions. I'll start with one first. Um, so, just double checking my understanding that the seven enlightenment factors, they are Having the, them balanced, it's a, the condition for one to experience nibbana. But it doesn't mean that having them all balanced means they can already experience it, but they like the basic necessity. So this idea of balancing the enlightenment factors is for the purposes of getting into jhana, not nibbana. Okay, so the process of the enlightenment factors being present in the mind, cultivates the mind for jhana practice. So another way of looking at it is that the jhanic mind is essentially defined by the absence of hindrances and the presence of enlightenment factors. But if you say that if we were to balance the enlightenment factors and nibbana arises, then all you have to do is focus on balancing the enlightenment factors and forgetting about jhanas. You can't do it that way. Then that way, then that means that nibbana is a conditioned state. But yeah. as we understand, nibbana is unconditioned. Nibbana arises as a result of letting go. But as you let go one layer, another layer pops up, and it, that's why it seems like no matter how deep you go, it feels like one meditation was very deep, and then the very next meditation, there's all kinds of hindrances coming up. That's because you're uncovering, unveiling deeper levels of conditions to keep letting go of, keep letting go of. Hmm. I guess maybe because I was confused by the name, the terminology, seven oh, enlightenment. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like it's suggesting. Okay, thank you for clarifying. So the thing is, outside of that, there are also 30 other factors that you need. So mm. there's the 37 requisites for awakening. So the enlightenment factors are only part of it. There are 30 other things that happen. Now I'm not going to talk about all of those because I don't want to further confuse you guys. But they're all happening in tandem whenever you're practicing. That's all you need to do. Uh, you mentioned there can be too much equanimity. Can you please elaborate on that? Yeah, because if you're too equanimous, it can, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. Right? Which means you're so equanimous that if somebody is uh, in pain, you're like, oh, your foot is hurting, okay, right? <laughs> Instead of helping them. So equanimity can be a deterrent to compassion. 
And so equanimity is enough for you to be aware of what's going on and not being affected personally by something. But if you have too much equanimity, then you're not really tending to the moment in terms of what is required. Maybe you need to be more proactive. Maybe you need to be a little bit more um, you know, understanding of what's going on in terms of situation. Maybe it requires you to go and help that person with the foot and put a bandage around them or whatever. So that's how you can have too much of Thank you. Here. Um, sometimes when I'm doing the radiating out thing, I can feel that I'm doing it too hard yeah. and then I feel that I need to relax and come back but sometimes it feels like it gets like locked in and i i went too hard and i was just stuck there yeah and i just you're, you're frozen in that position yeah yeah is it much collectedness okay is it how do i reduce that um <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually you bring in a little bit more uh interest i mean you can pull back but bring a little bit more interest in what's going on. That way it kind of loosens up that tightness of collectiveness. And then it's more free flow rather than just like locked in. I mean, it's fine to be locked in, but then there's a tension there. Mm. So the locked in is really like it's flowing, but there's there's no barriers. Okay. okay. One other thing. C could you explain what the body feels like in the fourth jhana? Well, the body is very, very uh, minimal in terms of the feeling. Like there can be some sensations that arise in the body. Like if, let's say, you have a fly that lands on your skin and starts crawling your, on your skin, you can feel that. But for the most part, uh, for the most part, there is not much going on in terms of body. There's not a lot of contact going on there. So everything starts to happen here in the head. Okay. The body's very relaxed and tranquil. Okay, makes sense. Okay. Any Thank you. Here? No? Did you put your hand there? Sure, I can. I did? It's okay. <laughs> must be a you know, future question. <laughs> So this isn't really a question about the uh, awakening factors, but something that popped up. So I've, I've heard different teachers say this. Bonte, I think, said this at some point. Um, and it's something I'm trying to like sort of understand a little bit better. So it's this idea that you are the owner of your karma. Mm. And the sort of problem I have with that is when I hear it said in, in terms of like, you know, these children have cancer, uh, this is their karma, which might have some truth to it, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like a very compassionate thing to say. And also, like, karma isn't just my karma. There's, like, interdependence between all things. So it seems kind of strange to say, well, this is your karma. Like, it's just yours. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? Way to go off topic, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Hope that's okay. It's okay, it's fine. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so yeah actually when you read the morning precepts that's one of the things I think you read which is 
I am the heir to my karma, and you know, karma is my relative, and, and so on. So, the understanding there is that we are responsible for our own actions, first and foremost. So, first let's define what karma is. Karma essentially means action. Mental, verbal, and physical action. And all karma is intention, or intentionalized action. So, thinking about something intently. Saying something intently. Right? Obviously, when you, hopefully when we speak, we think before we speak, right? And when we act, we have some kind of intention behind that action, that physical action. That's one level of understanding of karma. The other level of understanding of karma is known as vipaka, which is the fruit of karma, the fruition of karma. That is the effect of previous actions that we've taken. Now, the Buddha understood this, and there is a sutta called Molya Sivaka Sutta. And in there, the Buddha says, there are those with the doctrine that all is karma, it's all karma. And so everybody is responsible for their karma, and so everything that has happened to you at this point is all karma. And the Buddha said that that could be, but it would be a overstepping uh, of understanding by saying it's only karma. Because there's other things involved. He said there are other things aside from karma. Like, for example, there's climate. There is uh, the, um, there's accidents that happen that are not in our control, not in anybody's control. Not intended, so unintended consequences. There's uh, the socioeconomic or political atmosphere that's going on. There's your health, an imbalance of during the time of the Buddha, they talked about humor, so imbalance of wind, or imbalance of fire element, or, or, or imbalance of mucus, or bile, or whatever. So all of these different variations, along with karma, have an effect on the body and the mind. So the way to understand that I am the inheritor of my karma is essentially, I am responsible for my own actions. I cannot blame others for my my wrongdoing all the time, right? I am basically responsible in this moment for whatever is happening. That's why the Buddha said there's old karma and there's new karma. Old karma is everything that has arisen as a result of past actions. But if I try to figure out it was because of something I did seven and a half lifetimes ago in this moment that caused me to do this particular thing or that resulted in this particular event, it's not really useful. However, if I'm in the present moment and I deal with that karma by letting go of my identification with it, then I'm preventing the further arising of new karma, which means, that is to say, the, the replenishment or recycling of that same old thing. Like for example, you talk about habitual patterns you know, we, we start to get ourselves involved in similar kinds of relationships. We might travel to a different country, but somehow we attract the same kind of group of friends, or we seem to land up in the same kind of situations all the time. And that's because of that old karma coming to be all the time. But if you let go of the identification of it, see it for what it is, abandon the ownership of that, which is an interesting point, because when we say ownership, we're saying, I'm just responsible in this moment for what I do with that karma. I can choose to keep holding on to it, 
or I can choose to just let go of it and pass on by. And this is a good point to bring up because that's what happens with hindrances. When we experience hindrances in the mind, they are basically old karma as a result of something we've done in the past. And whatever intentions we've had in the past, they, they snowball into these hindrances. Now if we choose to blame ourselves for those hindrances, blame others for those hindrances, get angry at the hindrances, fight with them, push with them, what are they going to do? They're going to fight back. They're going to become stronger. But if we say that it's only this hindrance and we let go, then that hindrance becomes weaker. And as it becomes weaker, yes, it will arise again, but it will arise in a weaker state. And so what do we do? We let go again. And so it arises again, but it's much weaker, much weaker, much weaker until it completely dissipates. So I think it would be ir irresponsible to say that somebody who has cancer has had cancer because of something they did in the past or whatever it is. Because that's not helpful to anybody, right? And that's just being a jerk. But if you say, what can I do now? How can I help you now? That's the way to deal with that karma. Does that answer everything? Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So we're also creating... Like, what we do now is obviously creating good karma or right, in whatever karma is. Yeah. Yeah. For the future. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry, what was the name of that super thing? Molia Sivaka. M O L I Y A. Sivaka. S I V A K A. Molia Sivaka. Well, I'm going to bring us back on topic a little bit. So uh, I just want to say that I heard the best thing about about uh, balancing the enlightenment factors. It was, uh, and you might have to be a little older than half of this room to to uh, be aware of it. But in the old days, we used to have um, stereos with all these buttons on them, and you would have all of these things, and you would equalize. You had an equalizer, right? So you think about that's the way I that's the way I meditate is I'm like okay I want a little less tranquility because right now I'm falling asleep every yeah. day <laughs> okay a little more energy you know or up and down whichever you like the knobs or the or the slides right so um, anyway I hope that's helpful that's a good simile actually that's thank a you good analogy yeah. thank you nobody wants to possess the mic. <laughs> I I still don't understand energy. Yes. It, is that intention or interest on the object of meditation? No. no. Joy is actually the interest. Taking interest in something is the joy. The joy. The energy mm. is the balance that happens as a result of taking more interest or less interest in something. So, focusing more or relaxing more. And that's the balance in the energy that you need. So, right effort, mm. the process of using the six R's or the four R's itself is the energy. Is the process. So, instead of saying energy, we can call it effort. That's why I said virya means strength or power, energy, or you can say effort as well. Making the right effort. Uh, 
intention? No. <laughs> yeah, you could say intention. Why not? I'll leave it. Yeah, because you are making the intention to either relax or you're making the intention to bring up a little bit more. Yeah. Ah, and I, I want to make sure. Uh, uh, Restlessness and uh, sleepiness. Restlessness. Yeah. Uh, 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 if, if I got sleepiness, I have to more collectedness, sampanjana, equanimity. Yes. Ah, I yeah, see. So you need more equanimity, you need more tranquility, and you need more collectedness. I see. Yeah. If you have sloth and torpor, you need more interest or joy. You need more investigation of states, meaning being present, being aware of what's going on. So first you need Dhammavichaya, investigation of states, mm -hmm. aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. You need more energy, right, or intention. It's a good way of putting it. And more joy or more interest in your object of meditation. I see. Thank you. I will try it. Thank you. been having this um, confusion for a while and I think the past um, trim guide have given me um, different feedback um, but I still haven't been able to resolve this that I've observed I've been able to experience what's that matches the description of say um, the second jhana and the third jhana um, however without having to experience or noticing or remembering noticing um, the descriptions of joy of, of PT, except for like the sort of electrical current that kind of goes up and down. Other than that, I have not recalled um, experiencing the gladdening of mind and then the uplift of mind to the degree I know what those experiences might, might feel like. And I'm just wondering, is that a sufficient mark, marking for, you know, that, that PT has been there? And because often I go straight into perhaps some um, um, the 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 reducing of the commentaries and then the more um, tranquility and then later on the heaviness of the body and the fullness of the head and then the bloatedness of the, the body parts and all that and then very steady calm type of feeling of mind um, without that gladdening you know um, upliftedness and yeah so just double checking again maybe you skip the second the first and second job that. That can happen, yes. But the gladdening of the mind that we talk about is essentially a mind that is uplifted, right? A mind that feels some level of happiness, some level of upliftedness, some level of joy. And as I say, it doesn't have to be so exuberant, it doesn't have to be so excited. It's just like a zest, you know, a little bit of a, of a, a pep to your step. Okay, thanks. I'm actually glad you went first because your question goes into my commentary. So um, I've been thinking a while about this awareness factors and, or the factors and awareness. And um, we spend a lot of time um, looking for the hindrances and what's preventing us from 
going on, and we talk about equalizing the factors, but I don't hear very much about how to um, how to recognize the same kind of R as in, in you know recognizing what's wrong, but also recognizing what's right. Where this all of a sudden there's a new stretch of the mind into new territory, and being able to recognize that that has happened and and to see where that that you know lands in the jhana factors like oh look at that i don't feel that anymore so this feeling is then that feeling and that's moving on yeah. right at that kind of a sense of yeah. gratification you get from being able to move forward there's a reason for that because the mind has a tendency to overanalyze <laughs> So, already, if I'm giving people the understanding of the enlightenment factors, already they're always thinking, okay, what is present now? What is present now? So, if I try to tell them to look now, when you change from one jhana to the other, what's going to happen? The mind's going to be, am I in this jhana or am I in that jhana? <laughs> so, this is a more advanced thing. Okay. For somebody who's done this for a long time, now they can look into territory, mm -hmm. now they can explore, oh, this is what's going on in the first jhana. Okay, all cool. Oh, this is what's happening in the second year. That's why we talk about uh, Majjhima Nikaya 111, Sariputta being one of the most advanced meditators, mm -hmm. looking at almost all, actually all of the factors that are present. There's something like 11 or 18 mm -hmm. factors that are present, right, that we haven't even talked about. And Sariputta had an advantage, because all through that, you never heard them talk about a single hindrance. Well, there you go. There you go. So... <laughs> <laughs> So this is a bit of a follow-up on my last question. So usually when I start meditating, uh, after a short period, I just start to feel like the Easter Island stone. I'm just like, kind of like rooted in the chair, and I'm just like, <laughs> this heavy thing. And I, I, I think it's equanimity, like we were talking about. But I think some of that, you were saying it's, there's too much collectedness, uh, which can lead to sloth and torpor, by the way. Yeah, and so that's that's like my problem. So I'm wondering how to increase interest because it, my mind's kind of like, oh yeah, that's that thing. I, I've seen that before. Yeah. And like, okay, when are we going to get over here? That's better. I want, want that to happen. I guess i got to sit here for an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's as simple as just like once in a while checking in with the mind. That is to say, very similar to what you were just mentioning. Like, what's going on right now? Is there anything that needs to be done? And then you notice, oh, my mind is a little heavy, so I should probably lighten it up with some brightness of joy or interest. Mm. So checking in with yourself once in a while. Okay, okay. And you're saying like just a drop at a just time? Just a drop at a time. Yeah. Okay. And just notice that one, how that kind of uh, spreads out throughout the mind. Okay. And is there... Um, supposed to be an intention to expand things like for, for some reason I'm doing that I don't know if that if I got that from somewhere if it's just a expand uh, you mean just like everything like the the field uh, like the visual field or just like the the sensory field yeah uh, I, well, well sorry I guess that's like part of the radiating it's like yeah the yeah 
Yeah, like the the radiating has finished, and then I'm trying to expand the canvas. If yeah. that makes sense. You don't need to. Okay. You don't need to. Okay. If there is spaciousness, there is. If not, then it's okay too. What what really matters is you get to a level of collectedness where the mind gets into that Mahasarachit, the luminous mind, or the the uh, quiet mind, as we would say. <laughs> and once you're there. Um, there's nothing to do at all at that point. Absolutely nothing to do. You just remain there and then make tiny micro adjustments depending upon how distracted your mind starts to get or how uh, dull your mind starts to get. That's it. Okay. And last quick thing. Is uh, a ringing in the ears indicative of any jhana? Um, is that common? Yeah, this is a good question because sometimes you get ringing in the ears, which means your mind is very quiet. Very, very quiet. And also, uh, uh, some people will see actual bright, radiant white light in their mind's eye or the field of mental vision. And that's also a sign that the mind is very collected. So. Okay. Uh, and ringing the ears, by the way, happens in many traditions. And really what that is, is like the nervous system is starting to like just, or the mind is starting to like just become quieter. And you can hear internal sounds that are happening. You know, like you can hear, for example, when you're very quiet, you can hear your heart rate. Mm. Or you can hear the blood flowing through your veins and so on. So mm. this, this is what's going on. Okay. Thank you. Uh, a follow-up question regarding the just tiny droplet. Do you have any tips to how to do like tiny droplet instead of a whole teaspoon of um, <laughs> whatever dose we need to add, or it will just have to come with trial and error? Trial and error. Trial and error. Okay. In Tokyo, you can say you can tell you, you can tell a new taxi driver because they just have two settings. It's like go and stop, go and stop, <laughs> and then as they get better, they start to like tap the pedal a little yeah. lighter. <laughs> Not a good <laughs> um, so I find it very fascinating that there's now so much uh, information about our physical body and how that uh, correlates to meditation experiences and chakras and and uh, uh, nadis and all the, all the sort of things. Uh, and so, so a, a materialist would say that, uh, oh, okay, so it's all explainable by the, by the body, and therefore that's it. And, and therefore, when you die, that's the end, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but it seems like our, our measuring systems are getting sensitive enough to just, and, and, and smart enough to be able to categorize more of what's going on in the body so that we're, we're, our understanding um, is expanding out in a materialist sense to encompass more of what was previously just a spiritual realm. Uh, and so, uh, is, am I right in thinking that we're, this just basically it's levels of coarseness? And if we were to become sensitive, whether through better instruments of light or whatever, or better mind or whatever, that this understanding will, will continue to you know, get into ever more finer states to the point where we might have scientific language for jhanas and cessations and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I think this is a good thing that you bring up. But I would also say that when it comes to the realm of jhanas and mental realms, uh, the, the interpretation from the data that happens, for example, you know, 
you're reading a brain that is uh, in cessation. But what you're reading is just electrical impulses and signals that suggest that this is what's going on. The innate experience, <clears throat> the subjective experience is one thing, or in case of cessation, non-experience. But let's say jhanas for, for, for that as well. Like you go through an MRI and it will tell you, okay, these are the, uh, the cortices that are, you know, active or, you know, this lobe is less in use or whatever it is in this jhana. Great. That's great. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's one interpretation from the MRI. And then you try to reverse engineer it and you get a jhana pill, right? And you, you, you take that and now you're able to be in that first jhana. But then where's the insight? Where is the wisdom that's cultivated from it? Where is the experience of seeing for yourself? Sure, it can be cultivated later on by observing, but your mind can become addicted to that, right? Like, oh, give me another pill. I have to check that out again. Whereas with going it the natural route, there's no addictive factor there. So it's kind of like with, with psychedelics where you might have an extraordinary vision, but you didn't earn it. Yeah. And therefore, it's not Modern part of wisdom. Yeah, it's not part of you, right? It's not part yeah. of your being. Yeah, very interesting. It's kind of like the science can only see the eggshells, but can never really taste the omelets. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Is that it? Looks like it. Is there other questions? Yeah. Uh, I have a question about difference between tranquility and uh, collectiveness. Yeah. Uh, both are mostly same. No, uh, tranquility is a feeling of relaxation, so that loosening up, really. Uh, sorry, Tran tranquility is loosening. Up, yeah? Okay. As a result of which, you have collectedness, where the mind remains on the object. So collectedness is just the attention not moving around. It just remains steady. It remains still. So stillness of mind. Ah, uh, I see. So if I want, uh, if I want collectedness, actually I should put. Thank you very much. Um, this one is a bit off topic, but it's related to the comment uh, that you made about unearned wisdom. Um, because I've got friends, or oh, I know people who's either um, curious about psychedelic drugs or have, you know, ex experiment with that, and they, um, what would you say to the audiences that's sort of on that track and curious about that to maybe get them to be more curious to try out this path so that they can earn their wisdom and what will be the benefit of doing this earned wisdom compared to the unearned wisdom? You know, okay, so... <laughs> I have a theory about how meditation started. <laughs> I think you know where I'm going. <laughs> Back in the times of the Vedas, 
Uh, we're talking probably um, 1500 BC or even before then. Uh, in the Vedas, you know, there are hymns given to this being or substance known as Soma. S-O-M-A-Somas. And uh, Soma was something that the rishis or the sages would drink. And they would get into these magnified states, heightened states, and sing and write all night long. And uh, very recently I was uh, watching this documentary and it has its own agenda and everything, but it was a very interesting remark talking about the search for Soma. And this guy proposed that the ingredients for Soma are essentially threefold. Uh, cannabis, opium, and uh, ephedrine, or speed, natural form of speed. So you can imagine, if you have taken those three things, you're in a heightened state of awareness. So my theory is, at some point, they ran out <laughs> And uh, they were trying to recreate these experiences. And so there must be a way that we can get into these experiences. And over the centuries, I believe, that's how meditation evolved. So, to those people who are taking psychedelics, you don't need to do it because you can have those psychedelic experiences through meditation. I mean, it's their choice. If they want to do it, that's great. But most people I've known in their spiritual journey have taken psychedelics, but one way or the other end up on the path of meditation or some kind of uh, spirituality outside of psychedelics. So it's a natural course, I would say. So not to take it too far down the rabbit hole, but uh, um, right uh, regarding so so I mean I've seen uh, you know people doing psychedelics, including myself, and uh, getting into these so-called dark night uh, states, right? So you can have a bad trip, uh, and and so recently I've sort of had this working theory that okay, because it pulls the ground out from under your your sensing. And therefore, you don't have the sanity of your body, of, of the you know, mindfulness of body to, to kind of ground you, um, that that can happen. And then also, sila also, yes. that when people are trying to do, like to, to um, what is it, uh, slam shift yeah. the jhanas and the, and the insight stages and stuff without the, you know, the wholesomeness and the, that sort of grounding of goodness, um, that, that a lot of the dark night stages or that kind of stuff it could be, you know, attributed to that to to lack of sila or lack of uh, sure. preparation for the mind. Yeah, I think this is a good point that you bring up because uh, in the practice we talk about sila samadhi panya, right? So that is first get your foundation straight. That's that's what sila literally means is the bedrock, is the foundation. So from that sila of keeping the precepts, your mind is right for getting into the practice of samadhi. As a result of which you get this wisdom that's earned as a result of the effort. Um, the other thing is, you know, you will notice that even in this practice with twin, there are times where people are very close to making a breakthrough, but sometimes it feels like there's some fear 
So I wouldn't call it a dark night of the soul outright because we know there are more, uh, for lack of a better word, violent sort of mental regurgitations that happen in the dark night of the soul. Here it's just this impending sense of doom or fear. And for those things, I would say that there are things that you can do with the energetics of the body. So there's a guy named uh, Todd Murphy who came up with a very interesting way of looking at the science of enlightenment, the brain science of enlightenment. And what he talked about, or what he proposes, is that when you look at a mind that gets into the state of awakening, there are two things that are involved, the hippocampus and the amygdala. But there's the right hippocampus and the left hippocampus. There's the right amygdala and the left amygdala. And the idea is, with the left amygdala, that is where all your verbal thought processes happen. That's where all the thinking and analysis and reflection come about. With the right hippocampus, that's where it's a silent mind that's more expansive, spacious. With the right amygdala, that's where the fear response happens. That's where the uh, experience of the impending doom happens. But with the left amygdala, that's where feelings of joy and bliss arise. So for the enlightened mind, what happens is the amygdala that has to do with joy is more active. The hippocampus that has to do with expansion is more active. The other two are silent. So when you're going through this process of meditation, this is what you're doing. Sometimes the amygdala, which has to do with uh, fear, might be a little active. So if that's happening, there is a way that you can deal with it. And that's with related to the energetics of the system, of the body. And so that's where I would introduce uh, a practice, but I will give that to you on an individual basis. So in the interviews, if you're interested, you can ask me about that. But it's very simple, and it starts to uh, soften that fear. It starts to uh, bring down the energy of that. Thank you. Well, that brings up a lot of things. Um, <laughs> so, uh, over the summer, I meditated like crazy for like two months, right? Like a lot. And I was at high elevation, and I was in Colorado for part of it. So, I was at high elevation in Colorado in their hot springs. So after I've meditated for about two months, and you know, I probably was going around like this with I, you know, deer in the headlights kind of look. I thought, oh, there's a hot springs I've heard about here, and I went and sat in the hot springs in the, in the water, and it was a mineral hot springs, uh, totally fresh every day, no chemicals, artificial chemicals introduced, and it was like the uh, relaxation and the release of every known toxin demand in my body at that point. Do you, can you comment about those kinds of experiences to the meditator, um, to meditative experience and, and stuff like that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, sometimes there is something known as meditation fatigue, or at least I believe there would be, because like sometimes people meditate for long periods of time, and it's like, one is they might lose steam, or the body might become very rigid. And so to loosen up, for example, in your, mm -hmm. in your case. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Todd Murphy also addresses this, where he talks about the enlightenment of the Buddha. 
mm. where prior to all of that he was fasting for a long period of time and you know dangerous amounts of fasting and then Sujata comes and gives him the bowl of uh, sweet rice porridge right and he eats that and that gives so much relief to his body and so all of those sugars and carbohydrates and proteins definitely have given the right causes and conditions for the mind to be more relaxed mm. and let go instead of being hardened and mm-hmm. tense because of all this fasting. Mm. Okay, that's, yeah, that, that uh, also resonates. And can you speak to the elevation? I think we talked about this once. Yeah, we spoke about that. Did you? I mean, in my experience, like when I was in the Himalayas, definitely there's something about the elevation, the altitude. If you are in a certain state of mind, uh, you can experience, um, you know, like I have experienced deja vu, mm-hmm. premonitions, right. all of these things, to the extent that where, uh, you know, I had visions of what would happen the next, very next day, and I'd be conversing with somebody, and mid-conversation, I would be saying the exact words that they're about to say. <laughs> and starts picking them out. So I think something about the elevation, but also Mm -hmm. probably something about the energy of the mountains. Right. The crystalline structure. Something. Sure, sure. That makes sense too. I I had the experience that the mind, the mind and the, like all the processes just seem really thin and light. Dainty, you know, super dainty. Yeah, there's like this thin veil, Mm -hmm. you know, and everything, well, maybe that's what it is. (laughs) (laughs) It was super easy to operate the equalizer because there was just hardly anything to move. (laughs) Just uh, still coming back to um, that discussion around um, the ones interested to, you know, or try or continue to keep going with the psychedelics rather than doing the meditation. I'm just sort of like thinking of playing devil's advocate here. They, some of the um, things they will say is, oh, well, if that's the case, then, you know, like say, um, trying out psychedelics and it will, take, will be quicker than meditation because meditation for a lot of people, it takes longer to progress. And you mentioned... Um, as John reminded like, as well, the sila is important, part of his path, um, and um, dana and, and all that. So they can say, well, if I have sila, you know, if I try to be wholesome, have virtual and have that, then can I just go like to take the quicker path? And um, so what would be your comment around that, again, to give, to add to the perspective of the, the more beneficial um, pathway of doing meditation. I know it's up to the individual's karma, and you know we respect everyone individual's choices of what um, what they would want to do. But just in terms of benefits of taking the the Buddhist path. Well, that's the thing. I'm not in the I'm not in the position to convince anyone of anything, and that's the whole point of the Dhamma: is come and see for yourself. There's a whole bunch of literature on the benefits of metta meditation or benefits of Buddhist meditation or mindfulness. So if somebody comes across that, then they can do it. But I would say that 
sometimes people just have to see for themselves. That's really it. Mm. They, they really just have to see, like, I'm being burned out by constantly tripping on shrooms or acid or whatever it is. There must be another way out of this. Mm. Right? And we could try to t give them all kinds of information about that. And that's where the idea of suffering comes about. Suffering takes you to two, two places. Further confusion, so more and more trips. Or a search for, is there a way, a better way out? And that can only happen on that person's decision. Mm. You can give them a whole thesis. You can give them, you, God himself can come down and say, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> but still a person would be like, no, I want to try some more shrooms. <laughs> I want to shrooms. I want to see God again in my psychedelic trip. Right? Yeah. I guess usually people like to feel like they own their decision and yes, they, they, exactly. they want to choose. Yeah, you, cannot, you mm. cannot take away that mm. ownership. Right? Mm. Thank you. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yes. Sorry, I just have to add that, I mean, in my case, uh, after, you know, decades of, of trying this and that, um, you know, there's that old movie uh, when Harry met Sally and she's at the table going, yes, yes. And then the other woman says, uh, I'll have what she's having. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, you know, all you have to do is look at the results. Like, yeah. look at the teacher, look at the students, see if that resonates with what, how you would like to feel, how you would like to be. And if, you know, uh, whatever you see, if that's what you resonate with, then that's probably what you want, I guess, right? Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, you know, the thing about meditation also is we shouldn't say that meditation is the end-all, be-all. That's the other thing, right? Meditation has its place. Remember, meditation is in samadhi, which results in insight and wisdom. That's where we want to get to. And if somebody over-meditates, uh, it can lead to the same kind of psychotic states that psychedelics can lead you to. If you're not doing the meditation in the right way, it can lead you into those dark night of the soul and even worse than that. And so the idea is even when you're meditating, know what you're, you're getting yourself into before you actually commit to something. So, um, you know, small sort of steps into whatever world that you want to get into and then see how it's working for you, or if it's not working for you. And then make adjustments appropriately. Thank you. Continue with what you, you said just now. Um, so what would be your suggestions to avoid meditation fatigue, especially during a retreat? Um, I've always had the impression that during a retreat, you should sit more uh, because that's the opportunity for us to really practice and drill because once we go back to our normal life we usually have less time to sit so what would be your suggestion to avoid this fatigue well i mean sometimes when you're meditating if you're meditating two three four hours at a time there's a point where the energy just wanes mm. and it's like you can't go any further that's when you got to stop you can't push yourself. Do not push yourself. It's it's a it's because 
even a short amount of medication can lead to some kind of an insight. So what that means is medication, it has a cumulative effect, right? It builds upon practice. That's why you need to have a practice. You can be on retreat and meditate six, seven hours a day, but you don't have a consistent practice every single day, then that means nothing. All right, let's share some merit. Be suffering wise, be suffering free, and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nadas of mighty power, share this merit of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhguru, Sadhguru, Sadhguru.